0: Lord, to help us as we, again, seek to think your thoughts after you, as we seek to understand more clearly who we are, uh, what you have done, what you are doing, what we need. Uh, Lord, uh, come to us and, and help us by your Spirit um, and work these words deeply into the fabric of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. I was uh, struck as we were singing by um, the verses to this, this great and, and really rich gospel song, Near the Cross, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And I was uh, struck by this fourth verse, Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting, ever, Till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. I had a conversation with my second cousin yesterday, and we were talking about the fact that theological seminaries don't prepare ministers to help people prepare for the biggest event in their lives. They stuff all kinds of notions in our heads, and they're good notions. They give us all kinds of practical tools for constructing sermons, but they don't teach us how to teach other people to die well. Well. A couple of years ago, I was in a conversation with a neighbor whom I gotten to know fairly well and he knows that I'm a minister and he's been somewhat forthcoming about his understanding of spiritual things. We've had some fairly honest conversations about these things and, and in this one particular conversation, and I may have mentioned this to you before, forgive me, um, I too am over 60 and I have an excuse. Um, he told me that he considered buying a third floor. If he's here this morning, I apologize, but I'm going to use this illustration. I don't think he is. But he told me that he considered buying a third floor condominium in Grand Harbor overlooking the Indian River Lagoon so that as he got older, he could sit on the porch, watch the sunrises and watch the sunsets as his life slowly came to an end. And it was pretty clear from what my friend said that he had no expectation, no clear expectation of anything on the other side of what came after sitting on the porch looking at the lagoon. No conception of anything after this life. No conception of a golden strand beyond the river. Maybe I wigged out, maybe I played the role of coward, maybe I was—I just didn't know what to say, but I didn't really respond, and I've thought about that conversation for probably three years now. And someday I'm going to re-engage that conversation, and I'm going to say something like this. What if the sunsets never end? What if the sunrises never end? What if everything that you've sort of been led to believe about what is on the other side, namely some sort of disembodied spiritual experience where you play a harp seated on a cloud forever and ever and ever, or the converse, some sort of disembodied experience where rather than singing... There's something really dramatic and drastic and awful that is a prospect. I'm not suggesting that either of those things isn't on the other side in one sense, because they are, and every one of us is headed in the direction of one or the other of those experiences. But what if there's something even more hopeful, glorious, marvelous, incredible, on the other side, where, in fact, there is no threat, there is no dread, there is no fear, there is no uncertainty at all, there is simply a forever of the most brilliant sunrises and sunsets and walks on the beach that you have ever seen or could possibly conceive. What if that's on the other side? And you don't have to get your fill of sunrises and sunsets from a third floor condominium overlooking the Indian River Lagoon until you can't see anymore, until you just drool when you try to speak. What if there's something bigger? And what if that is, in fact, the central idea of the Christian gospel? That the Christian gospel isn't about making us moralistic curmudgeons who just wrinkle up our, our brows when we look at the world around us and we see everything falling apart and, and moral chaos and everything else. That Christianity is not about being curmudgeons and complaining and wishing that something could be different, that things could be more like leave it to beaver than they are now, but something infinitely better and bigger and greater than you've ever begun to imagine. What if that were the central hope, the central thought of the Christian life? That it's not about being a moral curmudgeon and it's not about getting it right and making sure you get it right and make sure that you avoid getting it wrong or doing it wrong and monitoring everybody else to make sure they get it right and don't do it wrong. Ever been in an environment like that? I've created environments like that. I've been the author of environments like that. What if the Christian life is something so big, so unbelievable that it completely rejiggers how you think about life, how you view this world, how you live from day to day. And it isn't just a future thing, but it is actually a present though partial reality. What if if that's what Christianity was really about? That spectacular thing that will come to consummation at the end of history. That would change my mind and that would change my life. And that's what Paul's talking about when he comes to verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. I thought this was going to be a three-point sermon. It's not. It's going to be a one-point sermon. Because I think this thing is so vitally important that we need to camp on it for this particular sermon. What Paul's inviting us to in this second verse is a sober assessment, which, if we engage seriously, completely rejiggers how we think about everything. This is what he says. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we said last week, it's the reasonable thing to do. And then he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Let's take the two words, the, the two phrases in that verse and just talk about them a little bit, unpack them a bit. Don't be conformed, To this world. Some of you may be familiar with J.B. Phillips' rendering of that part of this verse. Do not let the world press you into its mold. Do not let the world press you into its mold. We're all being pressed, aren't we? I mean, think about it. We're all being challenged to conform, to know the latest trend, to have the latest gadget or device, to be current with the latest bit of news, the latest fad. It was fun. I have to confess this. It was fun to grow through adolescence and into adulthood through the 60s. It was a time of radical change, right? It was a time of non-conformity. I was there. I saw it. And you know what I saw? I saw what you saw. I saw a group of people rejecting one form of conformity only to take on another form of conformity. Right? I saw individual after individual after individual wanting to be individuals. Embracing a uniformity in a new culture that literally had a uniform. And what was the uniform? It was denims. It was blue jeans and Sears and Roebuck t-shirts with a little pocket on the chest. And it was leather jackets with dangling fringe. People are shaking their heads and nodding their heads and saying, yeah, I was there too. Right? We're all being pressed to conform. John Lennon got to the end of the seventies, poor John Lennon, and he said, Ah, the seventies, weren't they a drag, and aren't you glad they're over? <laughs> What's the point? There are always pressures to conform. Always pressures to be pressed into a mold, to be squeezed into a mold. Watch I don't care which one. Watch CNN, watch MSNBC, watch Fox News. That's how they make their living. Think about it. They make their living by trying to persuade you that the way they see the world is the way that you should see the world, and they seek to constrain and press you into that mold. And those are obvious examples. It gets tiresome, I think. I think it gets tiresome. Do you see what Paul is saying? You see what he's sort of angling after here? He's inviting us to turn our heads in a completely different direction. He's got he's got CNN and MSNBC and Huffington Post and Fox News. He's got them all lined up over here. And he's not, he's not suggesting to us that we turn from this one to this one. He's inviting us. He's encouraging us. He's encouraging us to make a sober assessment of all of this from A to Z and ask this question. Is the hope of utopia that each of these worldviews represents Is it going to deliver on its promise? Have they? For 20 centuries since the resurrection of Christ. Paul is saying, don't listen to those voices. Don't allow those voices to press you into their mold. And other voices as well. From the silly and stupid and tripe publications that you see when you go to Publix and you're waiting to get out of there. From that, I mean, it's even pre-juvenile. And if I'm offending somebody here, I'm glad. I'm glad. Because there's only so much time in life. And to give your time to that nonsense is bad news. What Paul's going to go on to talk about is having minds that are renewed so that lives can be changed so that lives can be a demonstration of the fact that the kingdom of Jesus is really here, really inaugurated in the midst of the nations of the world. So whether it's the silliness that you run into at Publix or the, or the stuff that you encounter through news outlets or the subtle pressures that come to you as a teenager and that don't stop when you get out of those horrible years, and into adulthood, those horrible pressures to conform, the apostle is saying, don't be pressed into that mold. And then the next word that he uses, it's very, very interesting. It's translated world. But, and I, sometimes I just don't understand why people who are a whole lot smarter than I am make the choices that they make. But if you have an ESV, and it's got a little number next to the word world, if you drop down to the bottom of the page, it will tell you that in the original Greek, that word literally is translated age. Do not be conformed to this age. Now, there's a a really close relationship between these two words, age, as it's used in the New Testament, And the word world or the word cosmos, which John is particularly uh, favorably inclined to use. When John says, be not of the world, you're in the world, but be not of the world, he's thinking along the same kinds of lines that the apostle is using. But Paul uses this word age here. Don't be conformed to this age. It's one of a number of words. You can find this out if you get a good Bible dictionary. You can, you can find this out that this is one of several words that has a reference to time. Right? There is the word chronos, from which we get our word chronology. What's a chronology? It's a timeline, right? What's a chronometer? It's a watch. It measures the seconds as they tick away, moving you closer and closer and closer to that inevitable thing that seminaries don't teach us to prepare other people for. Kronos. It refers to the specific business of one second following another, time as it passes. And then there's another word that, that is translated time or that has to do with time. And it's the word kairos. But the word kairos has reference not so much to the succession of moments, but it has reference to specific and important moments. Specific and important moments. And in the New Testament, in the Bible, those specific and important moments have to do with specific and important redemptive acts of God. So that when you read Mark's Gospel... And you read Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled on the lips of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The word time is kairos. It's not kronos. It's not just another second in a sequence of seconds. But it's a pivotal moment. It's a critical moment. And what is that moment? It's the moment when the king appears. And when the kingdom arrives, boom! It's life-altering, history-altering. It is a moment that rejiggers everything. Mark chapter 13. Be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Right? Not a, a period of time, but the time, a specific time. This is at the end of Mark's Gospel. What time do you suppose it is that Mark is referring to? He's referring to 11.45, 11.50, maybe 12 o'clock when I finally get out of here. That's a redemptive moment, isn't it? No, he's referring to the return of Jesus. That's the next defining moment in the unfolding story of history. Kairos moments. Specific, decisive, God-appointed moments. But the word that Paul uses here is the word eon. Eon. What is eon? Eons and eons. A-E-O-N-S. Eon. Aeon. Lots and lots and lots of time. Long expanses of time. Eons. Eons. And Paul here is thinking the way a Jewish person of his time would have thought. Paul as a Jew saw all of human history divided into this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. And when Paul admonishes us that we not be conformed to this world, not be conformed to this age, what he's inviting us to do, folks, by implication is, he's inviting us to make a sober assessment of the world in which we live, the age in which we live. And what is it that characterizes this age? My, my cousin, um my cousin and I yesterday. And he he kind of brought this up. He said, "He said, do you feel like people are kind of in denial about reality." Is that just a gen? He's a couple years older than me. Is that just a generational thing, or do you think it's it's kind of like everybody's just sort of in denial about reality? I said, "Well, you know, I I think I actually think that that builder generation, that post World War II generation, those." Those folks who, who gave so much, who laid down so much, they, they saw enough. And and they may, it may this denial thing may be a little bit more characteristic of them. They saw enough suffering. They came back from the war, they built and built and built and built. They didn't want to they didn't want to deal with the realities of pain and suffering. So maybe it's a little more characteristic of them, but I think it's characteristic of all of us. We're just sort of engaged in fundamental denial about the nature of the world in which we live. And Paul is saying, don't be conformed to this age. He's not just thinking about moral codes and good things and bad things. He's thinking about everything that characterizes the right now in which you live. What is it that's characteristic of this age? Look, I'm not here to be a curmudgeon, to be a sourpuss, to throw rain on your parade. I'm here as a minister of the gospel trying to get myself and us to engage things as they really are. And here is what is true of this age. It is characterized by sin and death. It is characterized by brokenness and division and war and famine and drought and hurricanes, and cancer, and pain, and suffering, and loss, and tears, and sadness, and deprivation. And CNN, MSNBC, Huffington Post, and Fox News have nothing to offer with respect to that whole catalog of things that characterize life in this age. All they can do is report on it. And they would do themselves and us a great service if they would stick to that. Just report, boys and girls. Just report. Don't engage in this business of trying to resurrect utopias out of the ashes of bankrupt philosophical systems. What Paul is inviting us to do is take a look at this age make a sober assessment of it, and turn away. You know, there's a kind of a dot, dot, dot in this thing, right? Okay, so here's the command. Do not be conformed to this age. Okay. So, to what age then am I to be conformed? If I'm not to be conformed to this age, What age is it then that I am to be conformed to, or to to which I am to be conformed? Well, it is the age to come, because that's what Paul has in mind, folks. And I, I mean, I just have to tell you, I think if he were here, and if he can hear the sound of my voice right now, I think he'd be celebrating and saying, That's absolutely right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm not saying this to be self-congratulatory or anything else. I'm just saying to you that as a first century Jew, when he uses the language of ages, he's thinking about this passing age, and he's encouraging us, inviting us to turn away from this and orient ourselves in the direction of this, which is the age to come. And it is an age that is not out there in the future, except in its consummation. It is an age that is present right now right here, and right now. And it is orienting myself to that age which has already arrived, which becomes then the fuel, the basis, the hope, the encouragement upon which I begin to live the Christian life as I move forward moment by moment, day by day. Let me put it to you this way. And I know you know, a lot of you do, you, you know this. You know this is a kind of a theological soapbox for me. But it's really, really important. Let me use some language that's very familiar, which I think will bring this home. And then I'm going to cite just a couple of Old Testament passages to show you and prove to you from the scriptures that this is exactly what the apostle is talking about. Here's the language that I'll use, which is very familiar language, but it is language which has suffered terrible abuse in our day. It is the language in the last days. In the last days. And when I say it suffered terrible abuse, it suffered terrible, terrible abuse, in my humble opinion, at the hands of people who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is friendly. But the whole left-behind series is predicated on an understanding of the last days or the latter days, that they are the final days of human history in the sense that when you get to the end of the chronology of human history, these last days right down here at the end of this long chronology with Christ and his cross back here, these last days or latter days, they're down here at the end. And folks, that's a mistaken understanding of how the Bible views time It's a mistaken understanding of how Paul thought about time. It's a mistaken understanding of how we should view time. Let me give you a couple of examples. Look at Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. Okay, I admit, I'm taking something on here. And it may be news to you, but I just feel the need strongly to rejigger our thinking in a way that is in keeping with the Scriptures. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What's the prophet doing? He's doing what the prophets do across the whole of their history and the record of their ministries. He is drawing a distinction between the age in which he lived and the age that is to come. These days and those days. In these days and in the latter days. And Joel is describing something that was fulfilled, wasn't it? It was fulfilled in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. When Peter preaches his first sermon. And the appearance is that these disciples of Jesus are drunk. He gives an interpretation of this phenomenon. And it's in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. Ah, There it is in Joel, right? There's the Old Testament in the days of Joel. But then, Peter interpreting the phenomenon of Pentecost uses as his proof text, Joel chapter 2, and he uses the language of in the latter days, in the last days, that age, this age. What age are you living in? See, that's what Paul's saying. What age are you living in, folks? Look at this age. Assess it. Think about it. Evaluate it. Be honest. Brutally honest about it. Turn in the direction of this age. Look at this age. And be sober in your assessment of it. And what has happened as this age has dawned? Well, here's what has happened. Look at Isaiah 61. Verses 1 and 2. Although we could read... A good bit farther than one and two. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. There's the Spirit, the Spirit of Pentecost. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Upon whom? To whom is Isaiah referring? He's referring to the Messiah. He's referring to Jesus, this one who has not yet come, but who will come. He doesn't come in these days. He's going to come in those days, the latter days. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the prison of those for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Come on, guys. You watch television. What do you get? I get a faint spirit. I turn in this direction and I begin to look at the fulfillment of this, which is in Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was promised. I begin to look in the direction of Jesus and I read through the Gospels and I, I see what He does and how He relates to people and what He does to people and for people and how after three years of ministry He did the supreme thing by laying down His life and suffering the wrath of God on a cross only to rise again to ascend to be seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. I look at all of that stuff and I don't want to turn back in the direction of this anymore because this is my hope. And this is present. Jesus came in Hebrews. And this is, this is the last passage that I'll give you, but you can look throughout the Old Testament and you can find similar passages in the New Testament. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days, using the language of Joel and the imagery of Isaiah and of Zechariah. Read Zechariah 12 and 13. I won't... I won't refer to them now. Read Zechariah 12 and 13 and all of the promises that direct everybody's attention away from the current moment to something out there in the future, which is in that time, in those days, at the latter day. All of these glorious promises. The writer of Hebrews says, that in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Jesus, when he came, friends, brought the last days with him. And the last days having been inaugurated when He came, inaugurated by His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension and His rule and reign where He is King and where He is governing all things, Ephesians 2, for the sake of His church. Those days will continue until Jesus brings the latter days to their consummation And we are ushered into the new age in all of its consummate glory and beauty where the sunsets will never end. The sunrises will never end. And where all of those things that are catalog catalog and characteristics of this fallen age will be forever gone. Here's what Paul is saying. Since this new age has come, why on earth? Why on earth? I think it's a humble appeal, folks. Why on earth would you want to be captivated, molded, shaped by something that is dying and passing away? Do you really want... to just to buy a third-floor apartment overlooking the Indian River Lagoon and watch your own life slowly fade away? Or do you want to rejigger the totality of who and what you are, reorienting the entirety of who and what you are so that you are seeking no longer to be conformed to this age, this poor and paltry and fleeting and dying age? but in fact are being captivated and molded and shaped and preoccupied with and more and more deeply in love with the new age which has dawned and which will be brought to completion at the end of chronological time. The ironic thing, the striking thing, is that this doesn't make Christians so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. The striking and paradoxical and ironic thing is that as we get reoriented in the direction of the king and the kingdom, the king who is reigning and the kingdom that is present, though the nations will never acknowledge it, they'll never bow before it. But as we get our lives reoriented to that king and that Kingdom. It brings a transformation of life which works itself out in such a way that those lives become a demonstration of the will of God, a demonstration of the presence of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Lives which are good and which are acceptable and which are whole, whole, complete, perfect what they were designed in the first place to be. That's what Paul's inviting us to. An invitation to a sober assessment of our lives in the midst of this age, which is passing away and by implication, the challenge to turn around and reorient ourselves in terms of the king and his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a hard, hard thing for us to do. And I confess to you my own struggle in doing it and in understanding how to encourage a people to do it as well. So here we are again, before you, profoundly, desperately, in need of your ministry to us, your grace poured out upon us, worked into us, so that the only voice we hear and the only voice that matters is your voice in the midst of the cacophony of voices that would seek to press us, shape us, and mold us after their image. Jesus, give us grace. Give me grace. Give us grace. To hear your voice. Be enraptured by that voice. Be changed by that voice. And now be with us as we come to this table, we ask in your name. Amen.